Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It's Monday, November 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Democrats have retained control of the Senate, and the House is still up in the air, although the numbers look to favor Republicans. Throughout the midterm elections, there have been many tight races, and margins are just razor thin. So why is America always divided 50-50? As the two parties constantly jockey for the majority, neither one of them really builds any momentum. Annie Lowry, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for how polarization and a changing electorate is impacting politics. Next, more colleges are offering admission to students who never even applied to those schools. There's been an increase in universities that are participating in direct admissions programs to streamline the process for students, but also to align them with geographic and academic interests and boost enrollment goals too. The result is tens of thousands of students are getting offers they never thought they would. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what to know. Finally, dialing zero to reach an operator or getting directory assistance from 411 is soon to be a thing of the past. How many people even use those services now, as smartphones have made them obsolete? Starting January 1st, AT&T is ending the service to landline customers in 21 states. Joe Constance, reporter on Bloomberg News, joins us for a brief history of 411. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Yet now, extreme MAGA Republicans aim to question not only the legitimacy of past elections, but elections being held now and into the future. The extreme MAGA element of the Republican Party, which is a minority of that party, as I said earlier, but is this driving force, is trying to succeed where they failed in 2020. Joining us now is Annie Lowry, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Annie. Thanks for having me. Well, we're just getting through this midterm election. And uh, just as it kind of was before a little bit, the question begs, why is America always divided 50-50? It seems like everybody's set in their ways more than ever. Uh, you know, you, there's the two major parties, obviously, and everybody's stuck to their tribes. And despite what we're seeing with the economy, other political changes that are happening, we still constantly see Democrats and Republicans almost evenly split. You know, I say almost, right? There's no true even 50-50, but it's damn close there. So, uh, uh, Annie, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing with this. One kind of important factor here is that if you are looking at an individual seat in the House or in the Senate, or you're looking at an individual district as it's voting uh, for the presidency, the likelihood that those districts are competitive 
it has gotten down, right? So it probably, you know, you probably are much more likely now than you were 30 years ago, say, to live in a district that routinely votes for a Democrat or a Republican. And so only about 30 of the U.S. House seats are considered swing seats anymore. Um, But when you look nationally, the House is often really close to 50-50 with only a couple seats determining control. The Senate is generally split pretty close to 50-50. And presidential elections are generally decided by really small margins, despite really radical swings in the economy and changes in the electorate. So in five of the last six presidential contests, uh, less than five percentage points in the vote has decided, uh, has has separated the winner from the loser. Um, and we've, of course, had these repeated scenarios where the winner of the popular vote has not actually won in the Electoral College, which, again, is a function of things being really tight and really close. And so this didn't used to be true. Uh, This is kind of like a 30-year phenomenon, but earlier in the 20th century, this this wasn't the case. And so just every election feels really momentous. It's really likelihood that control of some part of government will swing, and it, it makes it a really fraught, heated political environment. Yeah, and what we see, obviously, you know, to the point, right, we're seeing the House and Senate flip a lot more, and neither yeah. party builds much momentum for long. And that's an important thing because, you know, if no party is suffering this kind of big, embarrassing loss, it doesn't force them to go back and kind of see what was wrong, redo what they're, what, what went wrong for them and, and kind of improve themselves on the other side. That's an important part. And the electorate's not necessarily persuadable. As I mentioned before, they're all stuck on their sides. Uh, we're seeing this extreme polarization right now increasing. And all this stuff is kind of what fuels this whole thing of everybody just stuck 50-50. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that that first point that you mentioned is really important. And, you know, I don't know that there's a ton of political science uh, necessarily like literature on this, but I think it's self-evidently true. And this is true when you talk to political analysts and even members of the parties themselves, is that when you get electorally defeated really roundly, um, it causes you to rethink, to re-strategize, to change. Whereas if you constantly just have these kind of small, barely extant losses where if the election had just been held on a slightly different day or just slight changes in turnout might have changed the result, you don't have that kind of constructive pressure. And so you can look, um, you know, in even some of our peer countries, right, in the UK, uh, you had a long period of labor dominance that has been followed by a long period of Tory dominance, and it forces the out party to regroup. And that doesn't happen very much in the United States. And it makes the parties very focused on the short term. It makes them very sort of strategic um, instead of thinking about that kind of long term value proposition and very, very focused. They're just constantly focused on just the next election and just strategically how to win the next election. And I'm not sure that that's a good thing. And it means that all of these elections are really, really high pressure and anything that a party does, you know, it feels like it might get undone just two or four years later. And so in so many ways, it, it makes it a much more fraught environment. Uh, you made mention in the article how back in the day, the Democrats and Republicans did have a considerable policy overlap. Uh, you know, you constantly heard people saying we're uh, working with our friends across the aisle. That doesn't really happen much anymore. And if they do, they're like the old school politicians. They're the oldest people in Congress right now. And the voters themselves, you know, they a lot of times would uh, split tickets, you know, vote for this person, vote for that person. Now they're firmly voting along the party lines as well. Yes, 
Absolutely. And I think that these two phenomena are linked. So it was just true that you had a bunch of kind of moderates in both parties that like they could have been a Democrat or they could have been a Republican um, in the mid-century. And that's really, really not true. All of the kind of moderates are sort of gone. And the parties have moved away from each other. Voters have become um, much more consistent in their party preference. The number of like true swings or true independents or people who, you know, might vote Republican at a local election and Democratic in a national election has really has really diminished. And yeah, that kind of cross the aisle work has sort of dried up quite considerably. And and the reason is that, you know, I think one of the reasons, and um, there's a Princeton political scientist named Francis Lee, who's done really great work on this, has shown that, you know, if you consider yourself to be kind of a permanent minority party, right, for the next eight years, you expect your party to not be able to really win a national election and hold uh, the House or the Senate, it gives you an incentive to cooperate because you want to demonstrate to voters that you're still having some influence. And it also means that you're not as focused on the next election when you're pretty sure that you're going to lose, right? So maybe that makes you like a little bit more flexible and willing to work across the aisle because you want to show that you're doing something and also because you're like less worried about, you know, resting away the control of the House or the Senate in the next election. So the incentives, you know, I think that that one thing you can kind of think is you can sort of step back and say, isn't it good for voters for these elections to be coming in close and the parties to be competing for their attention and for their votes? But that's not really what's happening. Instead, they're just kind of like competing sort of viciously for like a very small amount of, of sort of gainable ground. And it makes them less responsive to voters, um, I, I think. And it makes them less likely to cooperate. Annie Lowry, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So now they're kind of just saying... Hey, you're in. You know, all of you can come. And we know only a few of you will actually take us up on the offer, but that's a few more students than we had before. Joining us now is Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about an interesting thing going on with college admissions right now that I never knew existed. So we're talking about something called direct admissions. And uh, basically, students can kind of sign up into a little program, give a little bit of information, biographical data, maybe uh, interest in in what major you might have, and then uh, your GPA. And then, uh, you know, kind of puts you into this pool of applicants. And some colleges are offering what it says, direct admissions. You don't have to apply. You don't have to do any other essays. You don't have to do any other stuff. You're basically in. So the hope for this is to really streamline it and uh, give a lot more students the opportunity to enroll in college. So, uh, Melissa, tell us a little bit more about what this uh, what this is all about. Yeah. So in the past year or so, a whole bunch of programs, websites that do kind of college information, college ranking, scholarship programs, a few nonprofits have created these direct admission programs where, as you said, the student puts in some basic information. Maybe they're just registering for the program to get information about schools. And then based on that, mainly GPA area of interest, maybe location, schools start pitching them and saying, hey, you know, you meet our thresholds, you're in. I know you didn't apply, I don't even have heard of us, <laughs> right. but you're in. And here's a scholarship that you can co- get if you come. We suggest you, you know, if you we weren't on your radar before, maybe we should be. For the schools themselves, too, a lot of times they're trying to meet certain goals and enrollment goals, and uh, this is a pathway for them to help fill that as well. Most of our attention goes to the schools that are very, very selective, but most colleges in the U.S. admit most applicants. 
so they aren't nearly as selective. And if you have meat kind of a very basic threshold, you're in. And these schools have always admitted that large share, but still made the applicants go through all of these hoops with essays and recommendation letters and a whole lot of paperwork. So now they're kind of just saying, hey, you're in, you know, all of you can come. And we know only a few of you will actually take us up on the offer, but that's a few more students than we had before. And these schools are looking for to increase enrollment generally or to increase enrollment for certain programs or among certain student populations. What kind of colleges are participating in these types of programs? And then also, what are some of those thresholds, those requirements? Some of these thresholds are, you know, a GPA of at least 2.75. So uh, something very attainable for a large swath of students. Yeah, so it's a real mix um, of public and private colleges that are getting involved in this. Some very small schools with just a few hundred undergraduates up to schools with tens of thousands of students all around the country. And they're often schools that aren't on everyone's radar. You know, they're, they're not top destinations for a lot of people. That's why they are looking to boost enrollment. And each school sets its own threshold. And for some, it's GPA alone. Some, it's GPA and a few other factors. So, yeah, as you said, the GPA cutoffs for some of these schools are 2.5, 2.75, 3.0. It really varies by school. And it might be slightly different by which academic program they're looking to recruit for. Where can students sign up for this? You know, what websites can they go to? What uh, programs can they look for? So just so that they're aware of where they got to go for it. So students can find the direct admit portals a few different ways. The common application just expanded its pilot with a number of schools and people who are filling out the common app. You know, it's just filling out the first portion of it. The biographical info will kind of get you into that funnel of students that certain schools are looking at. Niche is a big website that a lot of high school seniors and juniors are aware of to find information about schools. Uh, A bunch of schools are working with them. You can register there. This company called EAB, they just purchased one of these platforms and Sage Scholars, which does scholarships for private colleges. And it's kind of an employee perk at certain companies or with certain unions. People whose families participate in that can sign up for the for their version. There's also a bunch of states that do it. So it's worth Googling around to see if your state guarantees admission based on GPA or class rank. You know, you can kind of print out a list of, oh, here's all the schools that I'm already able to get into. You you did speak to a couple of students that went through this process. Uh, What were their reactions to it? One of my favorites that I spoke to, she was from Portland, Oregon, and really focused on schools in, you know, Pacific Northwest. And all of a sudden she got this email saying, congratulations, yes, this is real. Congratulations. Uh, You know, we've partnered with the school and they're offering you admission and $25,000 a year scholarship. And it was a small, much smaller uh, Catholic school in uh, Maryland. And it wasn't on her radar at all, right? It wasn't a public school in the Pacific Northwest, but she visited and she learned more about it. And she did the math and realized that with that scholarship, it was less expensive than her in-state options. That's great. And she's a freshman there now. Melissa Korn, higher education reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. 
So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. So a lot of these, again, you know, these things that are on the whole no longer necessary are the sun is setting on them. And, you know, you see the same thing with pay phones, phone booths, phone books, um, right. all of these sorts of things. Joining us now is Joe Constance, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's talk about uh, an interesting thing of how the phone landscape is changing right now. So the latest thing we're seeing is that AT&T is going to be halting services starting January 1st for digital landline customers in 21 states. What they're going to be changing is they're no longer going to be able to dial zero to get an operator or get directory assistance from 411. Now, a lot of younger listeners might not know what the heck that is, but back in the day, you'd call 411 and say, hey, uh, what's the number to so-and-so business or things like that. All of that uh, is starting to go away. You know, it's just largely unnecessary now. So, Joe, tell us a little bit more about it. Exactly. So, you know, that's correct. And so AT&T stopped offering those services to uh, wireless customers over a year ago. So cell phones and, you know, other telecoms are doing the same thing. They're all kind of phasing out these services. And as you mentioned, a lot of younger folks don't necessarily even know what, you know, the origins of what, you know, getting the 411 means. Personally, writing this story and reporting it out, I learned so much about landlines (laughs) and switchboards and all of these things, which was really interesting for me. But yeah, so a lot of these, again, you know, these things that are on the whole no longer necessary are the sun is setting on them. And, you know, you see the same thing with pay phones, phone booths, phone books, um, right. all of these sorts of things. Yeah, I, I mentioned uh, right before we got on for the interview, I, I myself am 39. I remember a lot of this stuff, but, you know, I, obviously the smartphones and everything blows everything out of the water. But I remember a time where, you know, you had to reset clocks and they say, call the phone number. It'll tell you exactly what the time is. And it says, you know, at the tone, the time is so-and-so. You know, those are all things that have kind of gone by the wayside now. Although I think that phone number still does work. But tell us a little bit more about kind of, uh, you know, how this whole thing did get started, because it is very interesting. I mean, there was a time where there was hundreds of thousands of operators that were employed to do this stuff, to do switchboard work, to connect people. And uh, I mean, I think now we're like at uh, 550 people are employed still doing some of this, but there's like a long history to all of it. 
it goes back a long, a long way. The first telephone exchange was founded in 1878 in New Haven, Connecticut. And really, that's what exactly, you know, like you just said, there were operators at a switchboard and somebody would call up and they would uh, ask to be connected to somebody else. And, and that could be a business or, or um, the police, the post office. And so that's how it started. And automatic or dial telephones didn't really come into the picture until later. So it was, you really needed a human intermediary for much of the beginning of the 20th century. And, you know, the first operators were teen boys, but they were a little rowdy and and not the most polite. So the owners of the the phone companies quickly shifted to hiring uh, women for the role. So it was one of the few professions that women were allowed to hold at that time. And so there was kind of a, a long history of the role and how it gained prominence and then started to sunset. Uh, that's a totally interesting tidbit about the teen boys being the first switchboard operators there. Because when you think of these switchboard operators, you know, you get that classic picture of a woman sitting there and with a bunch of wires connecting things all over the place. That's the classic image that you think of. And to you know, find out that it started out with teen boys, that's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting little switch there. And then, uh, so, and you may also, also made mention in, in about 2000, so Verizon had to start doing some automated menu changes for customers because uh, these operators, traditional operators that were paid to route calls, just couldn't answer the questions that people were coming up with anymore. People were coming up with crazy things, you know, what's the temperature? How long do I cook turkey? a turkey for? And, <laughs> and, and so, you know, even as far back as that, 22 years now, right, things were already starting to change with this. They just started to realize it wasn't as efficient anymore. And so, yeah, back in 2000, they, they moved to an automated menu um, because they realized that would just be more efficient so they could use the operators really for the things they, they actually were being paid to do. And so operators, especially in the 1970s and 80s, you know, another big role that they had was routing emergency calls. So, you know, 911 was not available in much of the country until, you know, again, later um, in the 20th century. So that was a big part of their job as well. So they were still kind of doing that sort of work really up until kind of the 90s and early 2000s. Joe Constance, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 